Lent is a terrible season. It's a 40-day period when we're supposed to confess our sins, to name the things we're complicit in, to acknowledge our shadow side, sit with it, even look into it. And what we're arguing this Lent through our sermon series is that that which we need to be re-examined, that which we need to shine light and to see, is our shame. All of this is pretty dark stuff, so why do we do it? Because there is such a thing as good guilt. I'll explain. Guilt is not the same as shame, but they're cousins, and I need you to hold that with me. Guilt and shame run in the same circles. They play on the same teams, but they are different. And here's the best way to describe it. Shame focuses on self. Guilt focuses on behavior. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. See the difference? Let's say I'm your teacher and I give you a test. You score a 52 out of 100. You fail. Shame tells you, I'm so stupid, I'm a loser. Guilt says, that was really stupid of me not to study for the test. I shouldn't have gone out last night. You see the difference? Guilt, it zeroes in on the behavior without diminishing the self. Shame, though, it bypasses behavior and goes right for the juggler. It changes how we see ourselves in the mirror ourselves in the world. It changes how we see ourselves in Christ. And it generates these self-fulfilling prophecies over and over again. Dr. Brene Brown illustrated this perfectly on 60 Minutes last year. She told the stories of parents telling her when their kids told a lie, they would respond, you're a liar. This is shame. These parents are shaming their own child and rewriting their kids' understanding of self. What they should have done is focus on the child's behavior by saying, you told a lie. And that's unacceptable in this house. We tell the truth. Here are the consequences for your actions. By zeroing in on the behavior, there's room for growth. Good guilt reminds our kids that they are good and that they made a mistake but they could change. Using good guilt, the parents communicate to the child that growth can still happen. Confession can occur, repentance can be achieved. This kid is in fact redeemable. They just need to change their behavior and the core of who they are still stays intact. To me, good guilt sounds exactly like what the season of Lent is supposed to be about. In Lent, if we focus on our behaviors, we'll hear God telling us confession can still occur. Repentance can be achieved. You, in fact, are redeemable. But here's the rub. Too often we bypass good guilt and we go straight to shaming ourselves and others. And what we argued last week is that the church has been little to no help to correct this. But I believe an authentic spirituality a truly deep, committed faith learns to see shame and resist it. And when we attack our own personhood, or even our kids' or others' selves, that core inner self, and we tell it on repeat that it's stupid or a liar or no good, then we start believing 
it at that core level. And that becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. When we shame our kids, where are they supposed to go from there? Other than into the next episode, the next moment, the next test or conversation or relationship or situation, believing that they are in fact what we said they were. Stupid, a liar, no good, permanently flawed. What growth could ever take place in environments like those? Do you see it now? We need to see our shame so we can repent and reorient from fulfilling it. We need to see the shame we place on others so we can repent and reorient the messaging that we're putting out into the world. So how do we do this? Well, the first step we said last week, we need to reorient the message we tell ourselves and others. We aren't the wretched, pitiful, broken, worthless liars at the core. We're God's beloved. We just lost sight of it, and we need to reclaim it. Second, we need to see how our shame manifests in the world. We need to replace it with good guilt. And that ties in perfectly to our gospel story. Let's jump in in Mark 8, 31. Then he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter lets Jesus have it. He's frustrated, but then so is Jesus, and then Jesus claps back. It's an intense exchange. Peter rebukes Jesus, Jesus rebukes Peter. We need much more of the gospel story here to fully appreciate what's going on. There's a lot of back and forth, so I'd ask, study the scenes before and after in your own time. Uh, They really does help. I'll give you a quick flyby, though. Jesus has just fed 4,000. This is the second great multitude feeding. This time, he was across the Sea of Galilee out in the desert. And the disciples are there, and they're blown away. When he finishes, they all get in a boat, and they go to the district of Dalmanutha. We don't know where that is, but it seems to be a port city somewhere on the Sea of Galilee. As soon as they arrive, Pharisees are waiting on the dock, demanding that Jesus perform signs from heaven that they've been hearing about. Jesus dismisses their request, leaves, then goes to Bethsaida, where he heals a blind man and makes more bread out of nothing for the disciples to eat. Then they leave there to go to Caesarea Philippi. So now, just in a few verses, we went from the desert to Dalmanutha to Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi. I mean, they are covering some ground. I mean, this new place is also where in Matthew, Jesus famously tells Peter, on this rock I will build my church. In Mark's gospel, when they arrive at Caesarea Philippi, people are talking about Jesus and Jesus asks Peter, who do these people say that I am? And then in a moment of clarity, Peter announces, Jesus, you are the Messiah. He gives the right answer. And so this is the context leading up to Mark 8:31, and in our encounter today. They are hopping from one city to another, dodging Pharisees, healing blind men, making bread out of nothing, feeding multitudes. It is a wild, every day is something new, something fast, something extraordinary. So Jesus leans into the moment and he throws everyone a curveball. He predicts his death. 
the Son of Man will be killed and three days later raised from the dead. Peter doesn't want to hear that. So he takes Jesus aside, tells him to stop, rebukes him. It's debatable, but I think it's clear that Peter's intentions are not on furthering the kingdom of God, but rather furthering the prestige and power of Peter. For him, as long as Jesus is alive and, and doing ministry, then anything is possible. Peter's rise in status, possible. People's, Peter's rise in power, possible. And he's loving this newfound fame. So for Jesus to say he's going to give it all away, turn it over in order to suffer a sinner's death, that's just too much for Peter to lose. He has set his mind on human things. And he likes his human things. He's not ready to let it go. But in God's new kingdom, if we want to gain life, then we must lose it. Look at what else unfolds. Verse 33. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus is clapping back at Peter's behavior not his personhood. He's telling Peter he's setting his mind not on divine things, but human things. This is good guilt. And that's when he delivers some of the best growth advice in all of the Gospels. Verse 34. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and to forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now we need hours to process these statements, so please go back and read them slowly and see how Jesus is using good guilt to help his disciples grow. He's calling Peter out of his bad behavior. It's the season of Lent for Peter, and Jesus is inviting him forward into divine things, away from human things. Do you know how I know this? Because of the very next story is Mark 9 and the story of the transfiguration. The same one we talked about two weeks ago when Peter, James, and John go up onto a mountain and see Elijah and Moses with Jesus and they hear God's voice. So Jesus rebuking Peter doesn't shame him, which means there's still opportunities for Peter to grow. And this is what good guilt can do. Jesus is reorienting Peter's behavior. It's what shame cannot do. If Jesus would have shamed Peter, Peter, you're so stupid, you always get this wrong, I would not have expected Peter to have overcome that moment. It would have ended their relationship. He would have walked away believing he was the devil incarnate instead of the rock on which Christ builds His church. Do you see the distinction? I get that it's nuanced, but here's why it matters. We have 
to be. We have to somehow let go of the hold that shame has on us. It has reoriented our connection to our own soul and therefore to God. It changes us, blinds us to the deep core truth of our existence, and it festers in us almost unseen. But we have to see our shame. We have to learn to recognize it for what it is and what it's done and then remove its power from us. And what Mark 8 teaches us is that good guilt can give us a good kick in the pants to get started. I mean, Jesus is a catalyst for Peter here. Peter's going down a dark, narcissistic, power-hungry road that Jesus reorients him from. Not by damning his selfhood, but by calling into question his behavior and then allowing him to repent. It's not wrong to say something negative or abusive or disruptive to someone if it's said in love. It's not shaming to discuss one's behavior or motivations. Honestly, it's what good friendships and small groups and Sunday school classes and true church community can really do for one another. We need each other to grow and to be more like Christ. We need people in our lives that can speak truth to us without shaming us that know us well enough to know that we're headed down a wrong road. Growth happens in those environments. Church should be like those environments. I find it interesting that in all the Gospels and all the stories, Jesus never plays the role of victim or creates one. You ever notice that? Another way to say it is Jesus never shames himself, nor does he shame others. He uses good guilt. He gets harassed, abused, mocked, ridiculed, pushed to the edge of town, almost murdered multiple times. But he never plays the victim or accepts the shame put on him from others. He's rooted in an inner knowing. He knows himself. He never makes victims either. He doesn't shame or cause pain or abuse at someone's core level. He calls out their behaviors. He does it for the temple rulers, elders, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, crowds, disciples, and Herod. But he always leaves a path for their redemption. Think about stories like Nicodemus or Zacchaeus or Peter. It's true for all of them and us. I really find this amazing. And I think all of this is true because Jesus doesn't shame himself or others. He rebukes, corrects, forgives, and redeems, but he doesn't shame. The same needs to be true for us. I'm sure there's things God is rebuking us for. I know there's sin in our lives keeping us from living our best selves. No doubt we have too much focus on earthly things and not enough on divine things. Of course we need to ask ourselves, what would it profit us to gain the whole world but lose our soul? But we don't need to do this in a shameful way. The core truth of who we are is still we are good and God's beloved. What needs to change is our behavior. What we need is a healthy dose of good guilt. It will motivate us to repent and then to reorient our way of being in the world. This was true for Peter in Mark 8, and it can still be true for us today.